ethics, right? He taught an ethics class there and stuff like that. Uh, Trent and I go way back, uh, way, way back. <laughs> we both pastored up in northern Minnesota together. Uh, and yes, it gets very cold and a lot of snow. And we were about an hour away from each other. So we get together with our kids when they were all small. And now they're all grown up having kids of their own. And uh, we just want to welcome Trent. As he's been with uh, Hope Christian Church for 26 years in Shoreview in northern um, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul area. And then Julie, why don't you stand too? Julie, this is his wife, and she's kind of helps put all this together for Northwestern. So a lot of emails back and forth. So with that, Pastor Trent, why don't you come and share what God has on your heart for us today? Mike, thanks as well to um, all of those here at Christian Hills who have uh, allowed us the opportunity to come and to share with you this morning. I, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Hope Christian Church in Shoreview. Uh, we're a sister congregation with you in the, uh, the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies. Actually, our congregation is not meeting this morning. Uh, the, the freezing rain, the snow, the wind, etc., was such that I believe service has been canceled. Uh, so our people are sitting at home, um, hopefully uh, seeking the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength in the privacy of their living rooms. Uh, whatever's going on, I don't know. They're, they're probably out in their driveway shoveling snow it is the reality. Uh, in some ways, I'm just as happy not to be in the Twin Cities this morning, uh, to be here with, uh, with you and to uh, enjoy what for us is, is balmy, almost springtime temperatures, wonderful weather. If you people woke up complaining this morning about your weather, well, God help you. You, uh, you need to come to Minnesota and spend a little time with us, and we'll show you what winter's really, really all about. Yeah, all right. Well, I want to just take a moment and uh, ask God's blessing, continued blessing on our time together here. Lord, as we go to your word... We, uh, we need you. We always need you. Whatever our circumstance, wherever we're, we're at, whatever we're doing, we need you. But Lord, we need you now. We need your spirit to breathe life into this. I, I need your spirit's anointing to, to speak with, with clarity, with power, with authority, uh, the truth of your word. And Lord, those gathered here, all of us, in this, myself included, Lord, we, we need your anointing, your help to hear your word, to understand it. Uh, Lord, that it is more than just an intellectual uh, grasp, but Lord, something that goes deeper. We, we need to understand your word in our hearts so that we can actually be the sort of people who go out and do your word, uh, apply your word. We, we see it come to life in the way we think, the way we speak, the way we live our lives. And, and we're inviting that, Lord. We're, we're inviting that, that miraculous work of your Holy Spirit uh, in, in this time, this place, to take your word and to cause it to be really nourishment for our spirits that, that then finds fulfillment. Um, in the things we, uh, we contemplate this coming week. And Lord, the times and places where we actually see this word brought to life in our experience. May it be so, Lord. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, you can follow along on the screen if you want. You can follow along in your, your Bibles. I'm reading a very familiar portion of Scripture this morning uh, from Luke chapter 10. But an expert in the Jewish law, a Pharisee, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus 
And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, excuse me, the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Who here, by, by a show of hands, who here has ever heard a sermon or a teaching on the Good Samaritan? Okay, we're at 90% easily, all right? Um, that sort of response begs the question, why? Why am I standing on this platform preaching another sermon about the Good Samaritan? Who needs to hear more about the Good Samaritan? We know this story. If we grew up in church, we heard it from the time we were preschoolers in Sunday school. We know about the Good Samaritan. Let me ask another question. Again, by a show of hands. Who here consistently, day in and day out, without fail, loves his or her neighbor even as you love yourself? Okay, we've got couple of hands here, but, but I'm, I'm noticing a serious uh, deterioration in our numbers here, okay? And, and I have to tell you, as a pastor, I, I, am, I am seriously offended. Come on, folks. You people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. You claim him as Savior and Lord, and, and Jesus himself. Uh, he says it, others say it. It's, it's found in the Gospels repeatedly. Uh, the, the greatest commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, all right? Not suggestions, not encouragements, not multiple choice options, commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and I, I think I saw two hands. What's the problem with us, church? It seems to me maybe we need another sermon on the Good Samaritan. Okay? Are you tracking with me on that? I know you've heard it before. I know you know the story. But you need to hear it again. Because if you notice, my hand did not go up for that second question either. Now, I love most people most of the time. But there's always that one, and there's always that one circumstance, that one situation. There's always that time when, frankly, my neighbor rubs me the wrong way. Frankly, if we're going to be honest about it, I can't stand my neighbor. I wish my neighbor would go away. And his need, his need if anything, is even more uh, offensive than he is. I just wish they, it would all go away. I don't want to deal with it. And so I'm just like you. I need to hear this sermon as well. I need to hear Jesus talk about the Good Samaritan, and I need to, to let what Jesus is saying here go deep, deep, deep into the very core of my being. 
Because I've still got some things to learn about loving my neighbor as myself. It began with a question earlier on in Luke chapter 10, an expert of the law, a Pharisee, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. We could, in a sense, say it is the most important question. Jesus answered this question with a question. Jesus asks, well, what do you understand the law to say? And the Pharisee, being a good Pharisee, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good answer, man. You've got it. That's right. That, that, that's, that's, that's it. He says, you know, if you will do that, if you will actually go out and do that, you will live. You'll have eternal life. The very thing you're seeking after, you'll have it if you just follow these two commands. But then the Pharisee, being a Pharisee, and wanting to justify himself, wanting to come out looking like the good guy, he asks one more question. Who is my neighbor? And it's a good question. It is the question that needs to be asked at this, this point in time. He maybe asks it for the wrong reasons, but he gives Jesus opportunity. Let's get this in some perspective before we move on. The first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's quickly followed by a second question, who is my neighbor? Understand, the answer to that second question, it is integrally related to the first. The stakes involved in answering that second question are no less than the stakes involved in answering the first. We're talking about eternal life here. Understanding who is my neighbor, and then, by implication, understanding what my responsibility, my obligation before Jesus is to meet the needs of that neighbor, this has something to do with my opportunity to experience eternal life. Now and forever, I, I need to get a hold of that. That's the context here, all right? Who is my neighbor? Let me tell you a little story. A week from now, Pastor Mike, for whatever reason, sorry, Mike, I didn't tell you this, but you're a big part of this morning's sermon. Pastor Mike is going to be in a bad part of town. I don't know if there is a bad part to Orland Hills. This is probably the first time I've ever been in your community, so, so I don't know. But, but, but somewhere in the greater Chicago area, there has to be a bad part of town. In fact, I know there is. I, I have been in some of those. Pastor Mike is going to be in a bad part of town. He's going to pop into a convenience store. He needs to get a cup of coffee or a snack. And as he comes out of the store, bad news for Pastor Mike. Sorry to do this to you, Mike. You've been so gracious. You've been such a wonderful host, so hospitable. And now I'm going to repay you with this. I'm sorry. There's a gang of six guys waiting for Pastor Mike as he comes out of that convenience store, and they have ill intent. In short order, Mike has a broken nose. Mike has a couple of broken ribs. He's got the beginnings of some ugly, ugly bruises all over his body, not to mention the fact that he has one less wallet and he has one less cell phone uh, than he had when he went into that convenience store. Mike finds himself, in short order, lying in an alleyway, slipping in and out of consciousness. Yeah. About that time, 
The pastor from the church down the street walks by. He sees Mike. He sees Mike's condition. And the fact is, he'd really like to help. Really. Really. He really, really would like to help Mike. But see, the thing is, he has this, imp uh, this important appointment in just a few minutes with this potential donor. This donor who has really, really, really deep pockets. And you don't cancel on a guy like that. You don't miss an appointment like that. So as much as he'd like to help, and, and really, he really, really would like to help. He keeps moving. Now, a couple minutes later, guess who comes by? It's Mr. Deep Pockets. Okay? This guy, he's been thinking he'd like to do something special for God. He's been thinking a big donation to his church might be a good way to let God and everybody else know how special. Now, he sees Mike and his reaction is far different from that of his pastor. Frankly, he's more than a little irritated. He is put out by what he sees. This isn't his favorite neighborhood to begin with, and now he has to see stuff like this. People in this condition shouldn't be laying out in the street. Don't they know any better? It disgusts him. He wonders if maybe, maybe... His big donation, if it shouldn't go to funding the church's move to a more safe and secure part of the city. And so he walks on by. Things are looking grim for Pastor Mike at this point. But here is where our story, there's a twist. It takes an unexpected turn. The, the last thing we would have ever expected, it happens right here, right now in the story. Hassan came to the United States from Syria. After his village was bombed, his parents killed, he figured it was either leave or end up on a casualty list the, the next time the Syrian army paid a visit. He spent three years in a camp in Jordan, awaiting opportunity hopefully, to come to the United States. When that opportunity was granted, he was overjoyed. And yet, when he arrived here in the Chicago area, he, he found a lot of people don't like his sort. Skin, his hair, his face, his music, his food, the quote from the Quran uh, that he has on the dashboard of his taxi. People don't like any of that. But when Hassan sees Mike laid out in the alley, it reminds him of things he saw when he was back in Syria. It reminds him of some things he's heard people right here in the Chicago area say they'd like to do to him. And there's a surge of compassion that rises up within Hassan. He pulls his taxi over. He grabs the water bottle from the seat next to him. He gets out. He goes to help. He splashes water on Mike's face. He washes the blood from his broken nose. When Mike is coherent, Hassan asks him if, if he can take him to the, the urgent care around the corner. And about now, that sounds pretty good to, to Mike. Hassan helps Mike through the door up to the counter. When the guy behind the counter asks for an insurance card, Hassan hands him his own. Hassan sticks around long enough to know that Mike is headed to the hospital. He, he gets Kathy's phone number calls her so she knows what's happened. The next day, he goes so far as to show up at the hospital, Mike's hospital room. He wants to be sure that Mike is okay. And so I ask you,
Which of these three? The pastor? Mr. Deep Pockets? Or Hassan the taxi driver? Which of these three was a neighbor to Mike when he fell into the hands of robbers? Now, I get it. This story makes some of us a little uncomfortable here this morning. All right? Because the Good Samaritan is a Bible hero. Some of us around my age, we grew up in church, and we remember the Good Samaritan as the flannel graph hero. All right? The Sunday school teacher whipped him out and stuck him on that flannel graph board, and we, we saw him as the, this, this incredible Bible hero. Now, if you are a generation younger than me, I don't know that this applies. You guys are like, well, not six generations. It just feels that way. But you're a lot younger. But, but there's some here, if you went to Sunday school, you remember the old Hanna-Barbera Bible cartoons. And you saw the, the Good Samaritan in cartoon form as he went down the road and as he, he ministered to this, this man. Whatever your generation, whatever your experience, the Good Samaritan is a Bible hero. For me to turn him into a Syrian Muslim, an immigrant, that's just not right. The Good Samaritan was a good guy. That's why we call him the Good Samaritan. It's right there in his name. Hassan, well, I'm sorry. Hassan, uh, three strikes and you're out. He's Syrian, strike one. He's Muslim, strike two. And he's an immigrant, strike three. Get this guy out of here. Hassan is the bad guy. Well, if Hassan is the bad guy in this story, he is no more so than was the good Samaritan in the story Jesus told. Be careful, friends. We take, we take this man, the good Samaritan, and in our minds we, we sanitize him. We turn him into a version of ourselves. We turn him into a 21st century evangelical Christian. We envision him walking down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho with a Bible in his hand, singing the latest worship song, waiting for an opportunity to bring honor and glory to God through his acts of service to those in need. Get that picture out of your head because that was not the Samaritan that Jesus was talking about. When Jesus told this story, his audience was every bit as offended at a Samaritan cast in the role of hero as we are with Hassan, a Syrian Muslim immigrant. Understand, that Samaritan, he was not a Jew in terms of his racial origin. His family tree was a strange mix of Gentiles intermarrying with the poorest of the poorest Jews, producing a mongrel people group despised by everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. In Jesus' day, if you were a Samaritan and you were looking for a friend, you better find another Samaritan because no one else was going to be your friend. The Jews certainly weren't going to be your friend, and neither were the Romans. They all hated you. The Samaritan was not a Jew in terms of his religion. This guy had his own crazy set of mystical beliefs cobbled together from elements of Judaism, blended with all sorts of pagan nonsense. This man's religion was an abomination. And this Samaritan was not a Jew in terms of where he lived, or at least where he was supposed to be living. 
This is one of the most offensive aspects of this story Jesus tells. A Samaritan on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho? What was that dog, that pig even doing there? He had no business being on that road. That man, that man, he should be with his own people up north in one of those segregated Samaritan villages. That's where he belongs. Friends, understand when Jesus told this story, not only did he make the Samaritan out to be the good guy, he had the Samaritan be a good guy, a good neighbor, in ways the Pharisees themselves, their followers, they were seldom, if ever, willing to be. That's why Jesus' story left his audience a little unsettled. That's why my story leaves us unsettled. We don't like the idea of a Syrian Muslim immigrant being a good guy, a good neighbor. We question whether it's even possible such a thing could be, just as Jesus' listeners did when they heard him talking about the quote-unquote good Samaritan. There are these passages throughout the Gospels. Jesus says something, Jesus does something, and it just doesn't make sense to us. It just doesn't fit with the way we think, the way we live. It just doesn't fit with our, our cultural values, our cultural perspectives. And we find ourselves questioning, looking for loopholes, raising objections, maybe even outright rejection, because we don't want to take Jesus at his word. And this is one of those places when we really understand the story of the Good Samaritan, we'd rather that Jesus kept it to himself. Because what Jesus is saying here is that when it comes to people in need, when it comes to people's brokenness in body and mind and spirit, when it comes to people in need, things like race and religion and skin color and country of origin, all of our social, political, cultural likes and dislikes, they don't matter anymore. If the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself, all of that sort of stuff goes out the window. It's no longer part of the relational equation. And what's more, then Jesus has the gall to say that our neighbor is anyone, literally anyone, in our sphere of influence whose needs we have the resources to meet. We like to think of our neighbor as the guy who lives next door to us. We like to think of our neighbor as the person who's seated next to us in Sunday morning service. Jesus says, no, your neighbor is that person you've never met before, and you stumble upon them in their moment of need. They're a total stranger to you. You don't know their name. You don't know their story. You don't know anything about them. And yet, in that moment, because you have the resources to meet their need, and because you are a godly man, a godly woman, you are their neighbor. And the time, the energy, the money, the material goods, if we have it and if we can make a difference, Jesus says, hey, friend, if you truly are my friend, you say you are, let's, let's, let's see about that. Friend, it's time to step up. It's time to meet the need. This is what it means to be a good neighbor. This is, what, this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the opportunity. You know, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. I believe it's uh, uh, verse 9 or 10 where it says, God prepares good works in advance for us to do. Okay, now I, I, I'm not going to get into the whole predestination issue and all of that. That's not what this is about. I'm, I'm just saying that, that, that God goes before us and he prepares opportunities for us to do good works. We don't necessarily see them coming. And, but there they are. 
Okay, and this is one of them, the opportunity to be a good neighbor, even to the person who we, we don't know, even to the person who is significantly different from us in any number of ways. Julie and I moved to the house we lived in right now um, 19 years ago. Nice house, nice neighborhood, very close to our church. Uh, I can commute to work on foot, even on a snowy day. That's how close we are. It's great. I like it. We moved in and uh, in short order found that we had wonderful next door neighbors, Mike and Donnie. Uh, during the summer, Mike and I, if his lawnmower didn't work, he borrowed mine. If mine didn't work, I borrowed his. During the winter months, if need be, I, I blew the snow out of his driveway. He would come over and blow the snow out of mine. When we were on vacation, they'd get our mail for us. We'd do the same. We, we, they were just wonderful neighbors, probably some of the best next-door neighbors we'd ever had. And, and during the, the, the summer, oftentimes Mike and I would, um, you know, we'd be doing yard work, and we'd, we'd stop for a while, and we, we'd chat. We'd chat about this, and we'd chat about that. We'd talk about all sorts of things. We, we'd find ourselves, at times, even talking about religion. I, I haven't told you the whole story here, because Mike, Mike was his name, in a sense, but, but Mike's real name was, was Muhammad. And his wife, Donnie, I don't even know what her real name was. Mike and Donnie had come to the U.S. in the early 1970s to go to school at the University of Minnesota. Mike had got his engineering degree there eventually, and they married and had kids, became naturalized American citizens. Uh, wonderful people. But Mike was a Muslim. And, and you know, by now, I hope you realize I'm a Christian, so you, you can imagine we had some very interesting conversations there on the front lawn about religion and God. On September 11th, 2001, you know, like the rest of America, uh, I was glued to the TV screen. Someone called me at the office at church and said, hey, you need to turn on the TV. And so I popped into the CE room and turned on the TV and like the most of you, you know? I watched the planes crash into the towers again and again and again and again. I watched those towers come down again and again and again. I heard the commentators try and make sense of it all, explain to us what was going on. I, I, I saw footage of the Pentagon under attack. I, I saw the footage of the hole in the field in, in, in Pennsylvania, and I, you know, was dumbstruck like the rest of America. I went home early that day and, you know, traded the screen and the CE room for the screen in our, our basement. And I'm sitting there watching the coverage, and the doorbell rings, which is kind of strange. So I go up to the door, and I open it. And standing on my front step is my neighbor, Mike. And there are tears streaming down his face. And I'm thinking, what has happened? Is it one of his kids? Is it his wife? What, what, you know, I, 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 again, that day was overwhelming. I'm not, I'm not even thinking straight. And the first words out of Mike's mouth, I am so sorry. I am so sorry for what has happened today. The people in those planes, that's not my Islam. The people who did this, this is not my Allah. It's people like this. This, this is one of the reasons my wife and I left Pakistan in the first place. I am so sorry for this. What was Mike doing? Mike was being a good neighbor. Mike was coming to me 
in humility, in brokenness, in, in, in a desire to, to somehow speak to, to the, 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 the pain, the, the, the fear, the anger that I might be feeling, just trying to say, I'm so sorry this has happened. And what's my response? I, 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 again, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. I, I, I don't even take his hand. I, I, he's in obvious distress. He's upset. He's broke. I don't take his hand. I don't put an arm around his shoulder. I don't invite him in for a cup of, of coffee. I don't do anything. I, I mumble something about, well, you know, it's really not your fault, Mike. That's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, and I close the door. What's wrong with me? And it gets worse, folks. Because in the coming weeks and months, I began to, to hear rumors of the, the fact that Mike and Donnie and their workplaces were facing all sorts of uncomfortable situations from coworkers. You need to understand, these people were Pakistani, and they looked Pakistani, okay? The skin, the hair, the eyes. These people were Muslims, and they looked the part, and they were an easy target. I started hearing rumors that their kids were... were catching all sorts of grief from their classmates in the, the middle school and the high school where they attended. And I'm hearing all this, and I feel bad about it. But do you think even once I walked 100 feet over to their door, knocked on their door? Do you think even once there was tears streaming down my face as I said to, to Mike or to his wife or to his kids, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I hear is happening in your workplace. I'm so sorry for what I hear is happening in your school. I'm so sorry that there is this backlash against you when, when, when you are in no way culpable for what has happened. I didn't do that once. Not once. About six months, eight months after the 9-11 attacks, I heard that Mike and Donnie were moving. They were leaving the Twin Cities. They, they came here to the Chicago area. Uh, they had extended family here, uh, felt that there was a more substantial uh, Islamic community in which they could find a degree of, of safety. Even before they left, the loading truck in their driveway, do I go over and say anything or do anything to express empathy, to express Heartache to, to express compassion? No, I don't do anything. Friends, being a good neighbor, the way Jesus defines being a good neighbor, it's more than lending my lawnmower to someone when he needs it. I should be willing to do that, but it, it, that doesn't cost me much. There's no great sacrifice in that. The thing is, when I see a good family, a good man, a good woman, good kids, when I see a good family being maligned because of their religion, their, their country of origin, that is a good work prepared in advance by God for me to step up as a follower of Jesus Christ and say something and do something that represents what I say I believe in, in a way that might actually plant some seed, make some difference in these people's lives. Hmm. But me... I'm too self-involved, too happily ignorant, more than willing to, to create a barrier of separation between myself and, and these people to pull out all my excuses as to why it's really not my problem, none of my business. Now, let me be very clear on this point. I am not the sort of guy who goes around beating himself up or feeling a lot of guilt 
about stuff. As I was testing the mic this morning, I quoted briefly from Romans 8, chapter 1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, folks, that's why Jesus died. That's why his body was broken. That's why his blood was shed. That's why he rose from the dead, was to see that we didn't have to go around beating ourselves up filled with guilt and shame and condemnation, okay? That's not my thing. I'm not a guy to go on a guilt trip. I recognize there, in all probability, I couldn't have done anything of any real substance for Mike and his family. But you know, there's no probably about it. I could have cared a heaven of a lot more than I did. Instead of just moving on, passing by, letting things run their course without saying or doing anything, I could have taken a stand for Jesus Christ in that time, that place, that opportunity that was provided me, and I didn't. I was the priest. I was the Levite. I was the pastor. I was Mr. Deep Pockets. I walked right on by. So when and where and who will it be? I don't know. But sometime this week, this month, this coming year, you, me, all of us, we're going to be out finding joy in our journey. And we're going to be laughing and loving and praising it's going to be great when bang, there it is, right in the middle of our joyous journey, right in the middle of our laughter and our love and our praise. There it is. Someone bruised, someone beaten, laying by the side of the road, at least figuratively, who knows, maybe even literally. And no, maybe their skin color and their hair and their face and their religion, their accent, Maybe the number of visible piercings or tattoos. Maybe the way they smell. Maybe just the sheer burdensome weight of their situation. Maybe all of it. It's just going to be too much for us. Let some other bleeding heart take care of it. Because I don't have time for this sort of thing. Hmm. We're going to be right up against it in that moment. A good work God has prepared in advance for us an opportunity to bear witness to the mercy, the grace, the love, the compassion, the healing power of the God we say we serve. There it is right in front of us. But the temptation, oh, the almost overwhelming, overpowering temptation just to walk on by, just to keep on going, turn the head, look away, get on with life. But who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Jesus has been pretty clear about that here in this parable, hasn't he? Hasn't Jesus expressed himself to a degree to which we're, we're no longer with excuse, no longer able to, to claim ignorance? Aren't we, in fact, accountable, responsible before the Lord in terms of how we respond? Hmm. You see, Jesus was pretty clear about something else. When you and me, when all of us, when we were the ones beaten and bruised and left for dead by sin, by the world, by Satan and his demonic crew, who was it who came along then and loved us, forgave us, cleaned us up, 
Did we deserve that? Did we have it coming? Was it our right by birth? No, of course not. It was the loving, gracious, merciful heart of God that reached out to us in that moment to show us that compassion, that healing touch. But having, having extended that grace to us, freely you've received, freely give. I've done it for you, now go do it for others. As Jesus said at the close of this parable, go and do likewise. When it's us, God knows, we want the love, we want the help, we want anything and everything that God and God's people can do for us in our time of need. Help me! You know what? Quote, unquote, other people. You fill in the blanks as to who those other people are, but quote, unquote, other people the ones Jesus said are our neighbor. Those people want the same thing in their time of need. They, they, they want some love. They want some help. They want anything and everything that, that our God and we as God's people can do on their behalf to help meet that need. And that's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, go and do likewise. Now, you don't have to appreciate everything I've said here this morning. You can complain to Pastor Mike after I'm gone. I'm not sharing my email address with you folks. But I hope and pray the Holy Spirit takes this word and it becomes a nuisance in your heart, your mind, your spirit. It becomes that little thing that just, like that grain of sand in the oyster shell, you know? You just, you can't get away from it. And it starts becoming a point of conviction. A, a, a point where you have to start praying about it and meditating upon it and really working it through in your life. I don't know your life. I don't know your, your neighborhood. I don't know your workplace. I don't know the school you attend. I, I don't know your circle of influence. I don't know anything about that. But my prayer is that God is going to use this begin to awaken within all of us this awareness my neighbors my neighbors people I need to love people whose needs I need to be in the business of helping to meet may it be so may it be so God God help us God we love ourselves we don't have a problem with that sometimes we even love you we love other people who are who are more or less like us, who, who fit into the neat categories. But Lord, there's all sorts of people out there. Oh God, they're hard to love. You know it. We, we freely admit that. Love is not the first thing that comes to our hearts and minds when we think on these people, when we meet these people, when we come into contact with these people. Oh God, in grace and mercy, so transform our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit that somehow, someway, in those watershed moments, those, those key points in time where we have opportunity to represent you, we would step up and, and Lord, your love would so overflow our lives that we wouldn't see the things that we've seen formerly. We would not be uh, offended or put off by the things that have offended and put us off. Lord, we would simply see people created in the image of God who need to know the love of Jesus and we would be the person used by your spirit to present that, to offer that, to extend that. Lord, help us. 
Help us in our fallenness, our foolishness, our fleshliness. Oh God, continue to make us your, your people in every sense of the word. Lord, may it be so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Blessings to you folks. Thanks for your...